Well, good morning, River City. Uh, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to be with you again this morning for worship. I've been off the past couple of weeks, uh, much needed little vacation time with the family, and and uh, so grateful to get to be back with you again this morning. Uh, big thanks to Scott Sterner and John Lightbody, who both preached while I was off so I could take some time off, and uh, they both did just a really incredible job. If you missed either of those sermons, I'd encourage you to go back, find those online. You can find the links to those on our website, or just like Google River City Dubuque, wherever you find your podcasts, and you'll find the, you'll, you'll find the podcast stream, and you'll be able to find those things online. But just grateful. One of the things I love doing is getting to share the pulpit with with others and getting to entrust, uh, just like just know that God's going to be at work through others who come teach His Word here, and so glad that that was the case. Uh, but that said, I'm, I'm excited to be back. I'm feeling good. I got my vitamin D levels back up to a sufficiency, and uh, excited to be back with you here this spring. So excited as well to continue our series in the Gospel of John together. But if maybe like me, you've been gone, uh, or you just joined us for the first time this morning. It's important to understand that that John's Gospel, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark. Mark and Luke. It kind of tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. But what we've seen from the beginning in John is that John's gospel is really unique. He ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new stories about Jesus' life and ministry. And, and we've seen that the reason for all those differences is because John's primary purpose in writing this gospel isn't to introduce Jesus to people for the first time. But instead, it's actually to stir up, to awaken a kind of genuine, authentic, heart-level faith in Jesus amongst the people who are just characterized by kind of just a mere head-level familiarity with him. You see, there he was writing to a people who knew enough about Jesus to be familiar with him, maybe even to mentally agree with him, but not enough to be transformed by him. And John's hope in his prayer is that in seeing Jesus through a new lens, people's kind of lifeless head-level knowledge about Jesus might finally become the kind of real, authentic, life-transforming, heart-level faith in Jesus that actually produces real life in us now and for eternity. And, and we saw how through the first half of John's gospel, he focuses on Jesus' public ministry, and he accounts for us a number of kind of new stories about Jesus' life and ministry as he went around preaching and teaching and performing miracles. And, and the heart of John's gospel is about showing how Jesus is the Messiah, he's God himself, come to rescue and redeem his people and that's kind of this public ministry is the first half of john but in the second half of the book john zooms into the kind of final few days of jesus life and ministry and as he withdraws from the crowds and as he invests his remaining time with his disciples and because what jesus is doing is he's trying to prepare them He's trying to prepare them for, for what was about to happen to him in his, in his coming death, but also he's trying to prepare them for the kind of life and ministry he was calling them to live and to lead after his death. And it's a section in John's Gospel that's often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. And we've been taking a look at that for the past couple weeks. We'll be in it for a few more together. Um, and this morning, as, as we take a look at it again in, in chapter 15, what we're going to see is that the, the kind of life that Jesus is calling his followers to, to live it, it doesn't just require that we believe true things about him. It's not just about believing true things about him. Rather, it requires that we have an active and ongoing relationship with him. Our life characterized by being connected to him, by being connected to the source of life itself. Can't wait to show it to you this morning as we dive into John 15. But with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into our passage together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for our time together, and thanks for your word. 
And God, as we come together this morning to study it, as we think about um, the living the lives that you've called us to live as your people, um, God, we just recognize that like it just hinges entirely on being connected to you in an active and ongoing way. And so, God, as we come to study this morning, we pray that you'd help uh, help us to see that in your word, that you'd help us to not just know about it, but that you'd help us to rearrange our lives around this priority of being connected with you. And so, um, God, we need you to be transforming us and motivating us towards that, not with guilt and duty and shame, but with life and joy. And, and so only you can do it. And we pray that you would, God, for our good and for your glory in us, we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, begins this way. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. For while every branch that does bear fruit, he he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. But remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. For I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. And if you remain in me and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that, you may, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. For my command is this, to love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. And you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, that you love each other. Our passage this morning, it opens right away in verse 1 with another one of Jesus' I am statements, right? He says to the disciples, he tells them that, that he says, I am the true vine. This is actually the, the seventh one of these I am statements that we've seen throughout John's gospel. They're important because in each of them, what John's trying to highlight for us is that, is that Jesus is deliberately and emphatically claiming that, that he is God, that he's the, the great I am, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and commissioned him to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, and and that now in Jesus, that same God has come in the flesh to rescue people from their greater slavery to the enemies of Satan and sin and death. So that leads us to the what's at the heart of Jesus' I am statement here about being the true vine. Right on its face, it's, it's a metaphor that seems pretty straightforward to us, right? You got a vine and branches and fruit, and you're like, okay, great, got it, that makes seems to make sense, like I'm tracking with you, Jesus, right? 
But the reality is that the imagery here would have been much, had much deeper connotations for a, a Jew in the first century. You see, the Old Testament frequently uses the imagery of a vineyard uh, or a vine as a symbol for Israel, God's covenant people. But the, the, the thing that's really important to know is that pretty much every time the Old Testament uses that figurative language, it does so negatively. You see, Israel is described as a vineyard that either produces no fruit or that pretty much only produces bad fruit, and as such is threatened with God's just judgment. You see, so if you're a first century Jew and you hear this vineyard metaphor, that it's usually not like, oh wow, a garden, I love those. It's usually like, like the tone and posture of that metaphor is like, okay, all right, well, but brace, because something's coming here. Right? It was this reminder that Israel had repeatedly failed to be what God had called them to be and that no matter how hard they worked and no matter how hard they tried, they always fell short. And yet what Jesus is doing with the seventh I am statement is claimed to be the true vine. Right? He is flipping this imagery on its head. One pastor put it this way. He said, Jesus' claim to be the true vine is nothing short of a gospel declaration he is entering into this banner of failure over their lives, and he's saying, I've got this. You have not been able to be fruitful in a way that pleases God, but I have. I'm the true vine. I am what you have not been able to be, and the type of faithfulness that pleases the Lord that you've been able to walk in, I will now make possible for you. You see, where Israel failed, Jesus did not. He's the true vine that bears all of the fruit that is necessary. And Jesus has become for us what we could not be on our own. And he's done for us what we could never do on our own. And as much as we strive and as much as we work and as hard as we try to be moral and right and good people, we fall short over and over and over again. And yet, again, where we fail, Jesus doesn't. And he lived the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live. And he died the death that you and I were supposed to deserve. And he bore the fruit that God's people were always supposed to bear. And he does that for you on your behalf because he is the true vine. When you're by faith united with him, God sees us the way that he sees Jesus. And he is fully pleased with him, satisfied, delighted in. See, in Jesus' claim here to be the true vine, it, it forms the basis for really the whole passage, Right? And the rest of the passage is basically an application that stems from this revelation, right? The point that Jesus is making with this whole vineyard metaphor, right, is that because he is the true vine, right, because he is for us and because he empowers us to be, uh, to, to be what we could not be on our own, that it's imperative that we remain connected to him. Right? That word remain, in other translations, you might grew up maybe reading abide, right? It's repeated 10 times in our passage. Over and over, Jesus is highlighting for his disciples and for us the importance of remaining connected to him. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to just highlight through three things that the passage shows us about, about remaining or abiding in Jesus. I want to show you what it means to, to remain in him or to abide in him, why it's so important, and how you do it. So what it is, why it matters, and how to do it, right? 
And so the first thing is this, like, what does it mean to remain or to abide in Jesus? Again, Jesus re- continually comes back to that statement. Well, well that, that word that's translated as remain or abide, it's this verb that literally means to, to stay somewhere or to reside somewhere, right? And so when Jesus says to remain in him, he's, he's talking about being deeply connected, being deeply rooted in, in, to him in this active and ongoing way. Not in the sense that you kind of visit this spot for a while, and it's like a pit stop on a loop that you're making. But it's that he is the place where we set down our roots. Jesus is saying that the relationship with him is not like the spiritual front door. That relationship with him is rather instead like the hub of a wheel that, that every part of our life and our faith has to be connected to him, to who he is and to what he's done for you from the moment you trust in Jesus until the moment you meet him face to face. See, and that, that's at the root of what we are always talking about here at River City when we talk about being a church that's growing in the gospel or a church that's gospel-centered, right? We're talking about the idea that everything in our lives and ministry has to be connected to and motivated by the person and the work of Jesus in this active and ongoing kind of way. He's the hub at the wheel that every part of our life and our motivations, they always have to connect back to. Right? It's not, he's not just the thing that saves us, like Becky was talking about in the announcements this morning. Jesus is the means by which we have salvation, but he's the means by which we grow up spiritually. And so in other words, it's, it's our ongoing, active connectedness with Jesus. Now, that's the thing that it actually enables you not just to know him, but to grow up into faith in him. So that leads us to why it's so important that we remain or abide in Christ. Verse 16 Jesus says it this way. He says, I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. See, the purpose of Christ choosing to unite himself with us and is not merely so that we can have our sins forgiven. That's part of it. Not merely that we might have eternal life, that's part of it, but so that our lives might be fruitful and productive, that they might bear fruit in fulfilling God's purposes in and through us, right? in a way that, that affects us, that Jesus says that will last, right? in a way that has lasting effects in us and others. And so the question that you have to ask is, is just simply, what does it mean to bear fruit then? Right? If, if that's central to what Jesus is doing and choosing to unite us to himself, then, then what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, the Pharisees, they, they tend to define fruitfulness in these kind of external, moral, religious ways, right? It was about conformity in this external patterns in your life. And the fact that Jesus repeatedly condemns them for that, that should be a good sign to you that their definition was off, right? Instead, over and over what we see Jesus and the New Testament writers doing is they're, they're connecting this idea of fruitfulness with this inner transformation that happens in your heart and your character that then manifests itself outwardly in your attitudes, in your perspectives, in your behaviors. One of the best examples of this is this list that Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 5. It's often referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. Right? He talks about this, he, he defines what it means to be fruitful by talking about these character, these inner characteristics, love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he talks about how the increase of these inner qualities, they all manifest themselves outwardly, but they begin with this inner transformation. And that the heart of fruitfulness is not what's happening on the outside necessarily, is that the heart of fruitfulness is what's going on internally. Right, that we are increasingly embodying the very person and the work of Jesus. You see, Jesus embodied the fruit of the Spirit perfectly, which means that ultimately spiritual fruitness is about becoming more and more like Him. It's about having our attitudes, our actions, our perspectives, our desires increasingly brought into line with His. And that happens on a heart level place first, and then it manifests itself externally in our lives. And the way that that happens is by remaining connected with him in an active and ongoing way. And verse 8 highlights that the results not only in our own growth and others' growth, but the result is that God's glorified, right? Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. See, verses 4 and 5, they they reinforce this reality that Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples, right? That fruitfulness is directly linked with our connectedness to him. He says, verse 4, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus is trying to help these disciples know, right? He is preparing them for a life lived for his glory. He's preparing them for a life lived in his absence as he dies to death on their behalf and returns to heaven, right? And he wants them to know that that without abiding in him, without remaining actively connected with him, the fruitfulness that he's calling them to be characterized by is not just difficult, it's actually impossible. One commentator put it this way, he says, we're not simply handicapped or hindered. We are hopelessly paralyzed. We can do nothing. And just to be clear here, right? Like what Jesus is not saying is that you like you can't carry on ordinary tasks in your life without being connected to Him, right? Like, of course, that's not what He's saying. What He is saying, though, is that when Jesus says we can do nothing apart from Him, He's talking about producing spiritual fruit. Right? We're utterly dependent on Jesus to produce spiritual fruit in our own lives and in the lives of others. Right? And that's something, that all, that's something that you feel. It's something that's obvious to you. Right? When you're trying to grow spiritually, but you're just relying on your own effort and your own determination and your own strength, like endlessly what you find is not only is that ineffective, but it's just exhausting. Right? You just feel like you're spinning this treadmill of just like going through the motions and doing the things. And not only are you not growing, you're just exhausting all the energy you have to keep doing it. And then try helping other people to grow spiritually right, in your own effort. That's like even more pointless than trying to help yourself grow spiritually. Right? As a preacher, that's something I'm, I'm very keenly aware of. It's really easy for me to spend a whole lot of time and effort and energy trying to craft this incredible sermon, right? And then just like pray at the end and be like, God, I hope you use that. Right? Or just try to like work really hard on my own effort to like, wow, this this outline, this is really going to be the thing that transforms people, right? This is going to be catchy. It's going to be memorable. It's going to be great, right? That'll be the thing. 
And the reality is, is that I have absolutely nothing to offer you apart from Jesus. And unless I am deeply rooted and connected with him, then I don't have anything to give you. And you don't have anything to give anybody else. You see, our fruitfulness is always connected with our connectedness to him. The best thing you have to offer your family, the best thing you have to offer your friends, the best thing you have to offer your neighbors and your coworkers is not some like great gospel presentation. It's your own connectedness with Jesus. That's the best thing you have to offer. And if you are living a life that is characterized by a deep connectedness with him, then you will be bearing fruit in a way that has that can like fruit that can last, right? In your life and in others' lives. And it's a result of being connected with him. You see, without abiding in Jesus, fruitfulness is impossible. Right? He says, the branch cannot produce life on its own. It must draw that life from the vine. So we have to be connected to him. But but here's the good news, right? When we do abide in him, Jesus says that fruitfulness is not just possible, he says it's inevitable. It, it, it is the result of what happens of abiding in him. Verse 5, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. It's not like you might. We'll see what happens. Like he says, if you remain in me, you're going to bear fruit. Right? Being deeply connected with Jesus in an active and ongoing way, it invariably changes you, and it changes you to look more and more like him. Right? Not just externally, but in who you are internally, in your attitudes and your actions and perspectives. And that gets worked out in your life in ways people can see. And this is a promise that is hopefully just an encouragement to you. right? But it is also, I think, meant to be a sobering warning. See, the fruitfulness of our lives is evidence of our relationship with Jesus. And if we're connected to him, there will be fruit. And it won't always look the same for everyone, and it won't always be in the same quantity, and it won't always be the same quality, right? But there will be fruit if you are connected to Jesus. The reality is if there's no spiritual fruit in our lives, if over time we are not inwardly and outwardly becoming more like Jesus, then it is evidence that you don't know him and you aren't connected to him. Verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, I I just want to pause here for a moment because some of you are sitting here and you, you have trusted Jesus to be your forgiver and leader, right? Like you see him as the true vine. He's the source of light, right? But when you hear those words, or when you hear me talking about that, right, you are tempted to just immediately like hyper-analyze every corner of your life, right? And you are immediately filled with like this deep sense of like condemnation. And you all these ways you're recognizing you're still falling short of following Jesus. And, and you're just like, man, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Like, like, is there fruit in my life? I don't know. I guess I can just, I don't know if I'll know anything. Right? And, and I just want to say two quick things, if that's where you're at this morning. Number one, God's voice never condemns. And so if you have put your faith in him, and yet you hear these words of, you hear, your, hear of this voice calling you a failure or worthless, that you'll never measure up, I just need you to know, that's not God's voice. 
It has never been and it won't ever be. That's not his voice. Secondly, I want to encourage you to ask God to help you to zoom out. See, what happens is we tend to evaluate our growth. We tend to kind of do that by looking at the day view of like the spiritual stock chart in our lives. Right? And you, when you look at a stock chart in day view, right, it's just like up and down constantly, right? It just feels like, like there must be a war going on, right? Like what is happening, right? This is just a craziness, right? And then you zoom out a little bit, right? You zoom out to the week view or the month view or the 10-year view, right? And you're like, I don't even know if I can tell the difference that was going on there. See, what happens is, by God's grace, he invites us, I think, to zoom out and to ask him to show you how he has been at work in you over time. I ask him to help you to do that. If you're here this morning and you sense like that, that condemnation that is coming when Jesus says those words, ask him by his Spirit to help you to zoom out and to give you his eyes to see what he has been doing in you over time. His grace, I think, invites you to do that. And what you see is that he's been slowly and not in a straight line, right? but surely he's been moving you in a direction that looks more and more like Jesus. And is it happening as fast as you would want it to? Probably not. But he's still at work. And so ask him in the midst of those feelings of doubt and condemnation. Ask him in the midst of that stuff to help you to zoom out and have his eyes to see what he's been doing in you, right? But there are those of you who are here this morning, right, and Jesus' words of the inevitability of fruitfulness in your lives, they are meant to ask you, they're, they're meant to encourage you to ask the real question about your own heart. Right, there are those of you who are here this morning, and you've just been kind of doing church your whole life, and you've been kind of just going through the motions and checking the boxes and just like doing the stuff that you thought you were supposed to do. Right? And your, your, your parents or your family or your brothers or sisters, so other people, they have this really vibrant relationship with Jesus. And you're just like, you're just here. You're just showing up. And Jesus' words here are meant indeed to be a sober warning. Right, Being connected with him in a saving way, it always produces a heart-level spiritual fruitfulness. It always does. The kind of fruit that transforms us from the inside out. And the invitation that you might ask yourself is, is that happening for you? Is that, is that happening for you? It's a question that has eternal ramifications, right? We've got to be asking those things, right? So we've talked about what it means to remain, to abide in Christ, and why it's so important. The last question that we've got to do with our remaining little bit of time this morning is you've got to ask, how do you do it? How do we stay connected to Jesus in an active and ongoing way? Verse 10, Jesus tells us, If you keep my commands, then you'll remain in my love. See, obedience to Jesus, that's the how of staying connected to him. Right? Just let me be clear here. Obedience to him, that's not the how you get connected to the vine. Right? Obedience is not the how of getting connected with the vine in the first place. Right? Throughout John's gospel, we've seen it laid out explicitly that faith in him is the one way into a right and saving relationship with God. Right? And so obedience is not the way that you kind of you get or maintain some kind of status with God or right? 
Rather, what Jesus is saying is that obedience to his commands, that's how you abide in him, and that's how you bear fruit. Right? One pastor put it this way. I thought this was so helpful. He said, Jesus' commands are like wires that connect us to the power of the gospel. They don't have power in themselves, but they connect us to the place from which the power flows. But if you want to bear fruit for him, you have to be connected with him. And obedience to his commands is how you do it. You see, conversely, what you see is that living in sin is like this surefire way to live a life that's disconnected from Jesus' empowering presence in your life. Right? If obedience is the way to, to staying connected with him and bearing fruit, then like disobedience and sin, like that's the way you live disconnected from him. And you all sense that, right? Sin pulls us away from Jesus, not towards him. And it often leads us to running from God in fear instead of running towards him for forgiveness and help. And yet here is the good news that Jesus frames the whole passage in, right? That he's the true vine, right? That he's become for you the righteousness that you need. And the, he offers himself to you as the, as the way out of sin and the way into a life-giving, fruit-bearing relationship with God. He's giving himself to you as that. And that's not all the, the fruit-bearing obedience Jesus calls us to. Jesus tells us in verse 11, it's not a punishment or a test. It's actually an invitation, not just to fruitfulness, but to joy and life. He says in 11, I've told you this. The reason I've told you all this stuff, the reason I've told you I'm the true vine, the reason I've told you that obedience to me is the way you bear fruit, he says, I've told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. See, obedience to Jesus' commands, they're not a prison. They are a path to abundant life and joy. It's at the very heart of John's gospel, the very reason he's writing the whole thing. You'll find out at the end of chapter 21, right? He says, these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing in him you might have life. Real life. That's what Jesus longs for you. And if we might submit to him and obey him, there might be life. See, in that joy-producing obedience, Jesus tells us you can't miss this. It's motivated by responding to his love for you. Right, the command he gives, right, the obedience he calls for in the passage is to love others. He says, as I've loved you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, within 24 hours of saying this, Jesus would be hanging on a cross, dying for his disciples and for you and for me. And his command to love him and to love others is fundamentally rooted in seeing and responding to his love for you. John writes again to the churches in 1 John in chapter 4, 19. He tells them this. He says, we love him because he first loved us. See, experiencing his love for us leads us to, to respond in love for him and with a glad obedience that leads us to live lives of abiding in him, of being connected with him through obedience to him as we bear spiritual fruit. There's this old hymn written by a guy named John Newton, and uh, I've quoted this one before, but the, the end of the last verse is called, We Once Were Sinners Too. At the end of the verse, clo this closing verse, he speaks about this 
paradigm shift that happens when you see the love of God and how that transforms our lives. And he says it this way. He says, our time in sin we wasted until his love we tasted. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and to serve him with our all. See, the only way you live a life of ongoing, obedient connectedness with Jesus is when you see how he has loved you first. It's the only way. And when the good news of his love for you, his sacrificial love for you, shines brightly into your heart, it captivates you, and it leads you to a life ongoingly of giving yourself back to him. That's how it works. See, the obedience God calls us to, it is rooted always in responding to his love for us. Not in duty, not in obligation, not in drudgery, in joy. As you see, all he's done for us, right? That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. Reminding ourselves of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for us as he loved us sacrificially. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a a way that we get to remember him as the true vine, the one who was for us what we could not be for ourselves and through faith in him who empowers us to be all he has called us to be so that we might be drawn to him in love and empowered to live for him in this joyful obedience. And so if you put your faith in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, if he is for you the true vine, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it in joy as you remember all that you've put your faith in Jesus to be and to do for you. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, Maybe you're still figuring out what that means. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're realizing that you just all you have is this mere head-level familiarity with him. I just want you to know you are so welcome here. And yet I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that is set on him, that trusts in him completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we'd love to help you get to know him. And so as we sing and as we worship God by remembering the gospel in song, and as we celebrate communion together, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. Maybe you're here and for the first time you're realizing that you just have this kind of head-level familiarity with Jesus, and you might know about him, but you don't really know him. And you're not being transformed by him. And Jesus' invitation to you this morning is that you might reject a mere head-level familiarity and instead you might put your whole heart's trust and hope in him. To be for you what you cannot do and be on your own. Ask him to do that in you and to transform your heart. Others of you are here and you've trusted Jesus to be the true vine. But the reality is, is you are really not bearing that much fruit. And the reality is, is that part of that is because you are not remaining actively connected with him. 
Maybe that's a result of sin in your life that you're letting fester or go unconfessed to, to him or maybe to others. Or maybe you have just act, you've just stopped actively running towards him and pressing in towards him, right? And so as a result, you're just drifting away from him, right? No one is ever stagnant in their faith. You're always moving towards Jesus or away from him. See, the invitation is that we might keep pressing in towards him as we respond to his love for us, that we may keep receiving his grace, confessing our sin, turning from it, and turning towards a glad obedience to him. That we might stay connected to him and bear much fruit for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for your word this morning and for the reminder in it that you are the true vine that in the midst of this banner of failure over Israel and all they never could be, Jesus, you were flipping it and calling them, like saying that you were the thing they were meant to be and that you'd do it on their behalf. And so Jesus, help us to latch on to that good news this morning, to see you as the true vine for us and to see the necessity of our ongoing connectedness with you. And we pray, Jesus, that we would see the urgency and the joy of obedience to you that comes as we respond to your great love for us. May that empower us to live lives of obedience unto you, reflecting your sacrificial love for others, we pray. Amen.